Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 10. What we saw the last time was an expanded view of Saul's conversion. Uh, At this point, the Apostle Paul is still known as Saul. And today we're going to see the start of Saul's ministry and an intro to a behind-the-scenes saint, Ananias, who was a strong force behind Saul's ministry getting off the ground. We're starting at verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now in context, Saul is just converted by the Lord himself and left subsequently temporarily blinded. And here God is calling Ananias, one of his faithful servants in Damascus, to pick up the ball by receiving Saul. And Ananias' response is, Sure, Lord, as your faithful servant, your wish is my command. Not quite. You've got to picture Ananias' conversion or conversation with the Lord of all creation. Almost to say, Lord, I think you overlooked something. These are the facts in the case, Lord. Don't you see? He comes up. He comes all the way from Jerusalem. He's going to bind women and men and take them away from their homes and bring them all the way back to Jerusalem. And he has the power of the chief priest. Lord, don't you see how bad this guy is? I could picture the Lord sitting there with his arms folded and saying, like, I didn't see that, right? We don't ever do stuff like that, do we? No. We don't ever second-guess God to see if he didn't see all the facts or the circumstances. Lord, I don't think you heard right, because according to my calculations, Lord, this won't work. Lord, how can you ask me to be generous right now? Have you seen my checkbook? Lord, how can I tell the truth in this situation? Don't you realize, Lord, this will cost me my my job? Lord, how can you ask me to reconcile that relationship? Lord, don't you realize that we haven't spoken in years, and as soon as he sees my number, he's going to hang up the phone on me? But prior to Moses, it was impossible to use the Red Sea as a quick escape route. Prior to the wilderness wandering, it was impossible to stay close to 2 million people for a week, let alone 40 years. And prior to Christ, it was impossible for man to be beat, crucified, buried, and left for dead in three days, have him come back to life. But we're dealing with a God who makes the impossible a reality. Saul's changed life was a miracle. God can certainly still perform miracles in your life too, and I'm convinced of that. Also, we see how God often confirms ideas and visions between people. See... God had a specific vision for Saul, which included Ananias, right, as a receptor to pick up the ball. He was an integral part of Saul's uh, getting off the ground with his ministry. But neither would have made the connection without God confirming it to both. And I often see that in people's life with vision or ideas, how he uses on both ends, he makes it work. So when they come together, like, wow, the Lord put that on your heart too? You know, and and, and they didn't confer. Chuck Smith tells a humorous story about his son when he became, as he got older, he became, you know, a good-looking kid. And he said some women in the church, every so often a woman would come up and say, 
the Lord told me that I'm going to marry you. Well, if there's more than one woman who's saying that, somebody's got to be wrong, right? It's just a mathematical possibility there. And I've seen that too. See, that kind of defeats the purpose of marriage if both parties aren't in agreement, right? And in some places, it's actually illegal. Verse 15. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me, that you may receive your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Here's the Lord's response, right? We know what Ananias said. He had issues with Saul initially. Uh, I can picture, well, the Lord's response certainly wasn't, wow, gee, Ananias, I didn't see that. I didn't see how bad this guy was. I guess we should go to plan B. Wrong again. He didn't even address Ananias' concerns, if you notice that. He just starts out by saying, go, arise and go. Reminds me of Joshua 5. Before the Jericho invasion, Joshua sees a man with a drawn sword, and many people believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ. And Joshua gives him two choices. He says to him, are you for us or for our enemies? And the response is, no, but as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. He doesn't address Joshua's concerns, right? He just says what his uh, mission was. I love when we come to the sovereignty of our God. He doesn't address our quibbling or rhetoric. He doesn't address our self-centered ways. But Lord, me, 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 me. That's what it must sound like, right? But he knows what we need, and he gives us exactly what we need. Verse 16. We see here that Saul is to suffer. The Greek word is pathane, which the root of that word comes out in our English with words like pathetic, pathological. And there's an element of suffering to that. That's very interesting. He says he's one of my chosen vessels, okay? So we know he's saved. And he says he will suffer for my name's sake. Well, you won't see this type of exposition in a church that preaches prosperity all the time because it doesn't fit with their, their idea of what the Bible should be. And it's often hard for some of us to come to grips with the fact that's, it's God's good plan at times for us to suffer for his glory. It, it reminds me of actually reading this book that I talked about before by K.P. Yohannan, Revolution and World Missions. And he talks about the overseas church, especially in India, when they train uh, Indians to go out to their own villages and preach the gospel. He warns them. He says, some of you will die. You'll be martyred for your faith. You won't return here. And many of you will be beat for your faith. So if the prosperity gospel is true, then that means most of the overseas missions are failures, right? There are times that we have to suffer for God's glory. Then the question comes, how could a loving God especially allow his own people to suffer, let alone the rest of the world? Well, one of the reasons I can give you is that through Paul's experiences and ultimately his recordings in the New Testament, untold tens of millions or billions have come into the kingdom for eternity. 
Imagine that figure. Over the last close to 2,000 years, because of Paul's sufferings and his recordings in the New Testament, maybe billions of people have come into the kingdom because of his suffering for the Lord's glory. And I'm sure where Paul is sitting right now, he's happy that he had to suffer to see the fruit of his labors. I remember reading stories about, especially during the Cold War, the communists were very antagonistic to Christianity because if you understand true communism, atheism is married to true communism. So, of course, to preach about a, a, a Messiah who rose from the dead and who's going to come back in glory and dominate the world theater, that's a problem to communist uh, ideas. And it's funny how innocuous people thought communism was, but it's really not. But there's amazing stories about how jailers and persecutors and torturers and the secret police would beat these Christians and, and torture them. And they didn't understand how these people weren't yielding and weren't giving up their Savior and weren't denying him. And many of these people, these awful people, became Christians as a result of, of these Christians suffering. They're like, there has to be a God. What is holding these people together? Pretty amazing stuff. But via Paul's sufferings, the greater good was served. See, the big picture isn't seen by us, especially in our timeline. But God sees eternity. The concept of the greater good, unfortunately, is dying in our society. JFK's inaugural speech, one of the most famous lines that he said in that speech was, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's dead in our society. Today it's, what's in it for me? What can my parents do for me? What can the government do for me? What can I get out of this? You see a small group of atheists going through the court systems trying to sanitize anything of God, any semblance of God in the public arena. They don't care about the greater good. They're just concerned about their concerns. Again, if God doesn't really exist, why do they care? We're a bunch of fools for worshiping something that doesn't exist. In the U.S., we sue each other to impose our individual will more than any other country in the world. It's estimated that the average American spends an extra $5,000 every year because of frivolous lawsuits. It's just to impose our own individual wills. I want, I want, I want, and I don't care about anybody else. And unfortunately, sometimes that rears its head in Christianity. How can I shine it as an individual versus what can I do to glorify God and how can I fit in and work as an integral part in the body of Christ, not drawing attention to myself? That's why I love the soldier. One of the last few professions where somebody will serve the greater good and give their own lives for it. I was talking to a, a he was in fatigues. He was a, not a young guy. He was an, an older guy, soldier, a career soldier. And I said, hey, you know, he was in uh, one of the, the stores. And I said, where have you been? He said, I've been to Kosovo. I've been to Iraq. I go wherever they send me. You know what? I shook his hand. I said, thank you for your service to us. They, don't, they just say, I, I will give my life to serve the greater good. Let's bring it all home with the ultimate example of service, what Jesus did on the cross. I want you to turn to Romans 5, verse 6. Three verses. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the wonderful. No, no, I didn't read that right. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't wait for us to do it right, to get it all together, to clean our closets, to clean our house and have good relationships with our, our spouses. He died for the ungodly. He died for the ones that spit on him. He died for the ones that abused him, right? Another scripture, Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given them the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see, Paul was emulating his Savior with his sufferings. Jesus came first to suffer, right? But what was the result of that? Jesus was the ultimate example of giving his life to serve the greater good. And the result of that, the answer is, we get everlasting life for free. It cost him something, but it didn't cost us anything. Verse 17, going back to Acts. Let me read that again. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Ananias, okay, you see this conversation. The first part is uh, God tells Ananias to do something. The second part is Ananias returns, responds by saying, wait a minute, I don't know if you got the whole picture. This guy's pretty bad. The third part is, uh, God says, just go. Go do what I ask you to do. And the fourth part is, Ananias eventually comes to his senses and obeys God. Similar to Ananias, we may have our moments or doubts as believers, but we need to eventually come back to obeying and trusting the Lord. Coming to our senses. I lost my temper. I looked at someone who wasn't my wife. I argued with the Lord as with Ananias. Okay, but then what happened? See, that's the key. Then what happened? Did you continue or did you come to your senses? And this is what separates the believer from the make-believer. The believer repents of his or her sin and says with the heart, Yes, Lord, I will obey. And what is sin? Sin is manifested in any type of disagreement with God. Sin could be just disagreeing with him. God says, Well, I feel this way about adultery. And this is, this is the way it is. And you say, Well... I'm, I kinda, I'm a little different on that. I'm, I'm a little bit more lenient on that issue. That's sin. You're missing the mark. Hamartia in the Greek. Okay, You fall short of God's perfection. And we all sin. So any type of disagreement with God is sin. Look at Jesus' illustrations of the two sons. You had the one son. Two sons, right? The father says to the two sons, I want you to do this task or go out in the field. And the first son says, yes, Lord, I will. And he doesn't do it. And the second son says, uh, Father, no, I will not. But he, he thinks about it. He comes to his senses and he does, he does his father's will. 
And Jesus says, which one of these did the will of his father? And the answer is the second one. The first one gave mere lip service and didn't do it. The second one came to his senses, as in with Ananias and hopefully us. Verse 17 also, Saul is blind and Ananias comforts him with a touch and calls him brother. Ananias, the Hebrew word uh, possibly for his name is Hananiah, which means Yahweh or God is gracious. Ananias lived up to his name with obedience to the Lord. Try to imagine in Saul's mind, I love to put myself in the, in the you know, conjecture, but in the mind of these believers. You've got Saul, he's blinded, he has a conversion experience, right? And now he has to be led around, uh, you know, probably by the hand or in some way because he can't see. He takes this trip all the way up to Damascus, which was a long trip, and he's blind for three days. He's probably thinking in his mind, great, I abused these people, I separated families, I bound them, I did all kinds of awful things to them, I consented to some of their deaths, and now I'm going to be put right in the lion's den. How are they going to receive me? I'm vulnerable. How am I going to be received? Thanks to Ananias, he was received graciously. Likewise, we as Christians can only live up to our name as God's people when we're obedient to the Lord. After all, we do have the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that. Reconciling the rebellious back to God and showing grace in the process. Verse 17, again, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, don't be confused because this Greek word implies a filling for service. Saul's already saved on the Damascus Road. We saw that. And the unconjugated Greek word plato indicates influence, supply, and inspiration with principles or ideals, as opposed to sealing upon conversion. You see, Saul needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit because there's a heavy, heavy ministry that he has to undertake. And we've talked about some services back, the different ways the Holy Spirit deals with us, right? He comes alongside of us. He convinces us of sin. He fills us. He seals us upon conversion. And my prayer is, and one scripture Jesus says, uh, portion of scripture, he says, ask what you want from your heavenly father and he'll give it to you. And he doesn't say, well, God's going to give you, you know, another house and, and all these cars and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus continues to say, he says, uh, whatever, how much of the Holy Spirit you desire, the Lord will give to you. And that really stuck with me. Sometimes one verse out of scripture really has an impact. And often I pray, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I think about the things that I want. I think about ways I would like to feel better physically. And then I just say, you know what, Lord? If you fill me with the Holy Spirit, I believe all the other stuff will fall into place. So that's what we should be praying for. This is the last we hear of Ananias. He's a little-known believer who had major influence over Saul's early life. And what's interesting is often in high-profile positions, right? Because Saul was high-profile. People in those positions have often had help or have been influenced by behind-the-scenes believers. See, you need both. You need a Saul. You need a Saul to preach on Mars Hills. You need uh, these great men of God um, to, to be out there in the forefront. You need evangelists. But there's also, God uses behind-the-scenes believers just as much or equivalent to. And you need both. I want you to raise your hand. i got a few questions for you. Number one, and don't pretend. If you really know it, you know it. If you don't, don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever heard of Ed Kimball? Nobody. 
Well, he was a little-known salesman that led D.L. Moody to Christ. How many of you have ever heard of John Stalpitz? No, again, I'm surprised. <laughs> he helped lead Martin Luther to Christ. And even when I uh, talk about my pastor, Lloyd Pulley, he, he tells a story about when he was younger and he was being raised by his grandmother, and uh, God brought a male influence into his life, a strong male I don't even remember his name. See, I don't remember that guy's name. But all I remember, he was in a Big Brothers of America, and he helped to disciple Lloyd. He helped have a real influence on Lloyd's life. Again, behind-the-scenes believer. Now, uh, Pastor Lloyd has a very successful ministry that most of you know in Oldbridge. Even me, in a sense. Uh, one of my earliest examples was an old man from the islands. I think he was Jamaican. He was a simple man. And he worked out his last years in his 70s and 80s putting together wooden stairs in a stair factory, didn't have money, didn't have reputation. But what I do remember, and the irony is his name is Lloyd. He's gone since gone to be with the Lord. This guy had a profound effect on my life over 20 years ago. When I was in college, I had a, uh, part, a job over the summer in a stair factory, putting stairs together, making a few bucks. And this, this guy, Lloyd, was there. And most of us were young, young guys uh, that worked on a crew. And every time for lunch, this, this old man, Lloyd, would have this, he would open up his Bible at lunch and sit on a bucket and start to read the Word of God and preach. And the, us young guys would be captivated. We'd go over and we'd listen to him. And the man spoke with authority. And it just was amazing. Even now, 20 years ago, I can still see his face. But he had a profound effect on my life. But he was, most people today in our society of who's who and, and all the stars that you see on TV, we wouldn't, look, wouldn't give this guy a second look, right? But we know that all of us here are equal in value, and our gifts of the Holy Spirit and our ministries are also as equally as important. No exceptions. There's that one phrase that says, the ground at the foot of the cross is all level. There's a, an illustration physically, and there's a spiritual implication to it. When Jesus was lifted up, we're all at the, at the foot of the cross looking up to him, right? Just like Moses in the wilderness. When the snakes were biting, Jesus said, uh, Moses took a pole and lifted the serpent up, and when everybody would look at the serpent and believe that they would be healed, they were healed of the snake bites. Jesus brings that reference to himself. When Jesus was lifted up, he says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples towards myself. And where we stand is all level, but he's always higher than us. So we're all equal at, at, uh, here at the ground. The day the church realizes two things is the day the church will make real progress for the kingdom. The first thing is the haughty needs to stop looking down on other people. Shame on any of us, especially as Christians, if we look down on other people. In my profession as a police officer, I was taught it was an ingrained mentality. It's us against them. You know, it's the cops against everybody else. And you, you had a sense of dealing with so many people who are on drugs, so many people who are in domestic violence situations, that you started to develop this edge about yourself. And as a Christian, that had to be reversed. And now I look at people with compassion. And I see them and wonder, what, it, what is it that I can do for this person to help them out? It's a whole, totally different mindset. And it's a tough job being a cop because you could go to a call where somebody just died and then they tell you to hurry up with your report because you've got another call, burglar alarm waiting. And then people wonder sometimes why cops have an edge. I would just ask for you to pray for people in that profession because it is a very tough job. It's a lot on the human psyche. However, in the Lord, everything gets worked out. It's, it's amazing. The second thing the church needs to realize is the meek need to realize they is as equally as important as everyone else. Put away the false humility, put away the inwardness, 
your ministry, your gifts of the Spirit are just as important as the high-profile people. So everybody should go to the church barbecue and come out of their comfort zones and meet different people. That's a good plug for the barbecue. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. One of the greatest evidence of salvation is a changed life. I've given you examples and names of people who were former terrorists, admitted terrorists, former criminals and killers who have turned their life around because of faith in Jesus Christ, true conversions. And again, people may say, I found Jesus, I found Jesus, after they get in trouble, doesn't necessarily mean what they're saying is true, but God knows the heart. Time will always tell. And here you see the astonishment at Saul's 180-degree turnaround. I spoke in detail last Sunday about the importance of change, so I'm not going to reiterate last Sunday's message, but I will say that if you weren't here last Sunday and you think you're fine and you don't need to change, listen to last Sunday's message. Spoke in great detail, again, of that that importance. Suffice it to say that a children's life must be characterized by change. And I gave the illustration of a timeline. You know, we always want to move to that direction, that standard of being conformed to the image of Christ. As a Christian, you could be a Christian at five years old and live to be 90. It doesn't mean that at some point in there you're going to find perfection. Because Jesus is our standard. He's always that high standard. So as we grow in Christ, we keep moving towards that direction. And again, it's not to say that some of of us won't take a step backwards or two and then move forwards again. It's almost like a board game. But you keep moving towards that standard. Verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with him at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And while walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, According to Saul's own words in Galatians 1, you don't have to turn there, but if you read Galatians 1 on your own, you'll see that Saul, um, he expands more of this experience. And he talks a lot about how he spent three years in Arabia to be alone with the Lord after leaving Ananias. And also, we see this in other people, other strong men of God in the scripture. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. He, He was divested of all worldliness. And when he came out into the world, it was, it was culture shock because he just spent that time with the Lord to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be strengthened in the Lord, and bam, he went out and he did his ministry. And Jesus was also a great example. 
Many times he would withdraw to a solitary place to be with the Father. He had to draw that strength from his Father. We all need that time to sit at the Lord's feet and be ministered to by his Spirit. If you're in ministry or considering ministry and don't take the time to be with the Lord, you'll set yourself up for failure. My wife often quotes Mary and Martha, uh, often. And you see that Martha was busy. She was probably cleaning and making food and doing all these kind of things. And Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet, just soaking it up. Every oracle out of Jesus' mouth was soaked up by Mary. And Martha finally got upset and said, Lord, you know, I'm doing all this work by myself. Tell her to get up and help me. Paraphrasing, of course. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things, but Mary has chosen the better thing, to sit at the Lord's feet. Some, you know, James tells us that we shouldn't just be a hearer, but we should also be a doer. The Bible also tells us that we can't just be a doer, we also have to be a hearer. It's amazing how there's great balance in the Holy Scriptures. We need to be doers and put feet on our faith, but we also need to be hearers. And we should often hear before we do. And we see Barnabas again. Uh, Barnabas again. In Acts chapter 4, remember, we saw Barnabas lead the way in generosity. Barnabas was such a generous soul that um, a different Ananias and Sapphira, they were trying to compete with him, and they ended up, you know, they ended up dying, of course. But here we see Barnabas uh, acting as the peacemaker between Saul and the believers. You have to love the Barnabas-type believers. This guy is just always, you know, he's always just doing what he should be doing. He's not content with just playing church. He really lived his faith, and people like that are a blessing to any fellowship. Now, I'm just going to go with, uh, I was considering putting the screen up again and showing you the root, but I think it's more of a historical portion in the scripture. Uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit about Saul's root, his geographical root, post-conversion. From Damascus, he goes down to Arabia, and then he goes back to Damascus, and then he leaves there after an assassination attempt on his life. Remember, it says they let him down through a hole in the wall with a basket, and you might say, that's weird. How does that happen? Well, just like we saw in Jericho with Rahab's family, they would have these walls, you know, the walled cities to protect the cities, and they would often have an inner and outer wall, and they would sometimes put like apartments that would span the inner and outer wall for people to live in, but also for strength of the walls. So, it, you know, he was able to be led down through a hole in the wall through the basket, and he probably was able to flee through the city that way. It's very interesting when you learn the culture and you learn the, uh, the history. I encourage you, whenever you see something that has pure history and how the people lived, to look at it and then look at it with the eyes of the Bible, the Scripture. Then he, he goes from there to Jerusalem, uh, and he meets and he spends some time with Peter. Again, we can see this in Galatians chapter 1 if you want to read uh, that scripture when you go home. He spends some time with Peter probably to confirm to the church proper, to the church headquarters in a sense, that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. I was, I was walking and I got people with me and a light shone and the Lord spoke with me. He probably was just confirming them the rumors. Well, they're not rumors. I really had an experience with Jesus Christ. After another assassination attempt on his life at Jerusalem, the believers sent him to Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean, and then north over to Asia Minor to Tarsus for his protection, which was his hometown. The Jerusalem assassination attempt. Well, you know, Paul, or Saul, he, it, it shows that what he's doing here is he's debating with the Hellenists. 
Now, if you remember from our story about Stephen, the first Christian martyr after Christ, that's recorded in the scripture, uh, Stephen debated hotly with the Hellenists. And based on Paul's background in Hellenism, but also being schooled by Gamaliel, right? He had the best of both worlds, uh, Saul. He had the Hellenist culture of the Hebrews, of the Jews, and then he had the Hebrew culture. So it's speculated that when Stephen was debating the Hellenists, that, that Saul was part of that. Now he comes back, right? And he's debating against the guys that, that debated Stephen and largely attributed to his death. So it's almost like he's a traitor, right? His old buddies. And he takes up Stephen's mantle. I want to read one scripture. You don't have to turn there. 1 Peter 4, 4. It says, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You can look at this from Saul's perspective, but we could also look at this in our own life. When we become believers, we put away a lot of the childish things. We put away a lot of the, um, the uh, works of the flesh. And what happens is your old buddies, your old friends that you used to hang with and do bad things with, they're like, what are you, too good for us? I know a lot of you have probably experienced that. And they look at you like you're trying to be better than them. But all, you tr- you're, all that's happening to you is the Lord is changing you. And what's happening is there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a, a friction between you and your old friends. And then a lot of times what we want to do is we want to witness to our old friends. And you know what? Some of them may listen and some of them may be converted. But largely often what happens is they think you're strange. What happened to you? They found Jesus. And probably they'll talk about you behind your back and think you're weird, right? Became a Jesus freak. So what you see is Saul goes back to his old buddies and say, hey, listen, I know I was with you, but now you've got to see that this Jesus is real. And one of the last things that happens here is you see a time of refreshing, peace, and a regrouping of the church. What you see is the ebb and flow of the Christian experience. The Christian experience is not always rosy. It's not always cherries, right? There's some hard times in our walk. Anyone that tells you that you become a Christian and everything is going to be great, you're going to get the bigger house and the new car and the promotion at work and the the beautiful spouse, they're lying to you. And you know why they're lying to you? Because when you become a believer, when you become saved, you grow. You can't help but to grow. We talked about change and growth. And you know what? Growth can be painful. And change can be painful, especially when you start chipping away at all that old garbage in your life. doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, but it means that you're going to change. And it's, it becomes painful. But what you also see is it's wonderful when God gives you that time of peace prior to the breaking point. The church went through a lot. But you see in this last point that they're refreshed, right? They're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Multiplied. Just when they thought it was getting to be too much, just when they thought the persecution was getting too bad, bam, Saul is converted and there's a time of peace in the church. And we have to look at that in our own lives. Sometimes when we're stretched like taffy, sometimes you feel like Gumby, you know, you're getting stretched and the Lord's stretching you like, Lord, I just don't know how much more of this I can take. Lord, I need to be refreshed. And then there's a time of reprieve. And that's how the Christian walk is. Um, when I had uh, all these, these pictures, but I know that when I've had uh, problems with my back, it was coming from tight hamstrings, right? And the chiropractor would, would stretch me, and he'd do this awful stretch, and then he would, just when I couldn't take it anymore, he'd release. And then he'd push again and stretch again. You know what? Each time I found that my knee, each time got closer to my chest. 
What he was doing, he was stretching the muscles and making them better and relieving my problem. But if he did it all at once, he probably would have torn the muscle. But he would stretch, release, stretch, and release. And that's what has to happen in our life, folks. It gets rough sometimes. Change and growth hurts. But hang in there, just like in the scripture, God will give you that time of refreshing. Let's pray.